morning. Wow, the heat's really sapping out strength, isn't it? Yeah, totally get it. I'll try, the, I'll try to make this brief then, but uh, I do actually have a question, and I do want an answer for this. It's not merely rhetorical. We have good news to preach, don't we? Okay, good. I'm glad we agree on that one. I mean, we're actually doing this whole uh, church thing here. Everybody's here sweating buckets in a church service because we have good news and because the Lord has done great things for us. Amen? <coughs> Amen. So it's a little surprising sometimes that when we go out into the world and we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, sometimes people don't have the best reaction to the good news of Jesus as we give it do they? I don't know if you've noticed that. Sometimes, sometimes people hear the good news and they rejoice and they come to saving faith and it's beautiful and it's glorious. And sometimes, well, people have questions, concerns, open opposition, serious opposition. And you see, sometimes I wonder if it isn't partially our fault because sometimes we oversimplify the good news of Jesus Christ. We make it seem like uh, Jesus Christ is just a panacea, that he's just a way that we pretend that bad things don't happen, the, a way we try to ignore the existence of evil in the world. Oh, no, no, there's no, not really evil there. I've got Jesus. There's not really evil happening around me. If people can imagine that we close our eyes because of the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, I respectfully submit that in order to do that, you actually have to ignore huge swaths of the Bible. Most especially the book that I've been preaching through, Hosea. Hosea is one of 12 books in what we call the Minor Prophets. And if you've ever read Prophets, it's not on the surface level very edifying for the most part. It has an awful lot of things said about punishment, about wrath, about God having anger against something that's going on in people's lives, the things that people are doing. And, okay, this is a hard thing I'm going to set up for myself here. I'm going to say that that is unspeakably good news. And by God's grace, by the end of this sermon on Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 to 17, you will understand why the wrath of God is a good and beautiful and positive thing. I know that's going to be hard. So let's just go back a bit. Uh, been, this is, as you can tell, I'm in Hosea 9. So there have been a lot of sermons before this one. Uh, so I just wanted to re repeat, reiterate a few things that we need to know about Hosea as we're reading it. First of all, the book of Hosea is about two things. It is about a God who loves his people. He loves his people completely with a steadfast love and he has a people who don't love him. 
In fact, dealing with Hosea, Hosea is dealing with the northern kingdom of, Ju- of Israel. The other southern one was called Judah. At near the end of their time in existence, for hundreds of years, this northern kingdom has been kind of religious, kind of not. Kind of following God, kind of not. And in the end, they've fallen into the kinds of sin that make them separated from God. They're rejecting God actively now. So in the book of Hosea, as in a lot of the prophets, you'll see there's kind of a tension building here. There is a God who loves his people, who really loves his people. He uses the image in Hosea of a husband's love for his wife. He really, really, really loves his people. And using that same image, he says, and the people betray and reject him. And so there's a tension at work here. There's a loving God, but he is also a good God. He is a loving God who sees, the, who sees his people and sees them as the apple of his eye, as a blossom in the wilderness, he says, as grapes in the wilderness, which are horribly rare. And yet, they reject him. And sometimes their rebellion pretends to be religious. It looks religious. They have all the surface things of religion. They say, we really know God, but they don't. We know that sometimes their rebellion corrupts them. The things that they've enjoyed and loved after they follow after them, they lead them astray and cause them to be, become corrupt. You see, that's one of the big secrets about evil things that you think and do. It's, it's an open secret. The evil things you do actually change you. They do. If you embrace evil and sin and death, you become, over time, more and more evil. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago in, a, in an earlier sermon, so I'm not going to harp on that too much. It's into this context, or a rebellious people who are rejecting him, who have become corrupted at some level, that God speaks of his love. He speaks of desiring to woo his people back to himself. But God is not into wishful thinking. God is a God of truth. God is not pretending that things aren't wet the way they are. So today, I have to talk about one of the missing things that we need to think about when it comes to the wrath of God, when it comes to the love and the wrath of God, because God is wrathful against sin. God hates sin. I don't know how to say it more bluntly. I mean, that's actually a direct quote from the Bible. God hates sin. He says it a lot. But he's not some kind of curmudgeon sitting on his lawn just telling people, get off my lawn. That's not the kind kind of wrath we're talking about. We'll see in a minute. And you see, this is on the other side of what we usually think of God. Because, I mean, when I first came to Saving Faith, when people started telling me about this Jesus guy, 
I thought God was a little bit easy to use. I don't know if that's a great, good way to say it. I mean, he loves me. He, want, he desires good for me. And it doesn't really matter what I do. I mean, his goodness will show out whether or not I actually follow him or obey him, whether or not I embrace evil, apparently. I imagine that since God loves me, then I can do whatever I want and I can say to God, oh, well, you love me, don't you? You wouldn't, you wouldn't cause me to go through suffering or pain or difficulty. You love me, even if, even if I sin, even if I do horrible things to the people around me. I imagine that God will forgive me, and so I don't need to worry about the wrath of God. I don't need to worry about the way that God might be wrathful. After all, he's not wrathful. And I don't know if you've noticed reading some of the theological books that are out there these days. Uh, I might be the only one who does read theological books with his, for fun. But if you go out there and you read some of these things, it's actually becoming a bit controversial to say that God has wrath. I mean, if you've read your Bible, it's hard to miss God having wrath. It's everywhere. I mean, all 12 of the, uh, of the minor prophets, the five major prophets, almost all of the Pentateuch, try reading Revelation sometime. It's not great for avoiding wrath. And yet, because of the culture we live in, because of the way that we see love, kind of an anemic, surface-level thing that doesn't actually deal with truth, we imagine that God's love means that God can't have wrath. There was even a book written about five, six years ago by a guy named Rob Bell, who, you know, at this point people were thinking were, was pretty solid. He said, it says, the gods are not angry. And, and I have to say, I don't know if he, which Bible he was reading. But, so what I need to do today is to explain to you how God has wrath on sin and on evil, and how that is a good thing. We're going to be looking at the text of Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. If you have Bibles, please open them. Go to Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. I'll give you a minute. Um, again, the other thing is, uh, uh, this is a bit of a protection thing for me. I want you to have Bibles in front of you so you know I'm not making this up. Uh, so please open your Bibles. <laughs> Hosea chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying room and dry breasts. For every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. 
Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Not very uplifting, is it? This isn't the one that you put on coffee cups. Unless you have very strange taste in coffee cups anyway. I just want to talk first a little bit about the structure here, just so that you can understand what's going on. In Hebrew poetry, there's kind of this instance where they do things called a parallelism, where they have a parallel statement and then another parallel statement. In case you're wondering, verses 10 and 15 are the beginnings of those two parallels. So you've got a statement of, of uh, God's feelings towards uh, Ephraim, uh, their, their sin against God. Then you've got the punishments, and then you've got a final commentary by the prophet about what's going on. So 10 and 15 are parallel verses, and uh, 11 to 14 are parallel to 12 to 16, and then 14 the tail end and 15 the tail and 17 the tail end are going to be parallels as well. The reason for these and the, what he's trying to teach us here is the tragic results of a misplaced affection of the people. So I have three points, two of which I've already preached sermons on, so I'm going to skate over them kind of as quickly. And then the third one that actually deals with the wrath of God. First of all, misplaced ultimate affections lead us astray. They just do. The example we have here is Baal Peor in verse 10, if you see that there. Baal Peor, I mean, usually when you see names in the Bible, I know you kind of skate over them. This is actually important. Baal Peor was the place where the people of Israel decided that they would turn against God for the sake of intermarriage with the peoples around them. Uh, Mark Driscoll, an old-time, uh, an old-term pastor in Seattle would say, you know, she's hot, well, so's hell. And these guys are finding that out. They, found, they, desired, a, they desired women around them, and so they got married, and they didn't care about the fact that following after their desires meant that they would have to worship other gods. Now, let's be clear here. Being attracted to people of the opposite sex is not a bad thing. That's not what it's saying. The problem was they put a immediate good, something that is a good in our lives, above the ultimate good, God they exchanged a glory of something that God had given them for the God who gave it. And so the example fits for a whole bunch of things. It's not just uh, dating that's a problem. Those instances where we put the way people, whether people like us above God, same thing when we desire to have the world say nice things about us and we ignore God for the sake of that, same kind of thing. If your affections are for, I don't know, money, power, control, 
they can lead you astray. In fact, if any immediate good, any immediate thing becomes a God thing, that is going to lead us astray. You see, good gifts from God only make sense as good gifts if we understand they're from God. If we turn them into something else, if we imagine that these immediate things are more important than the God who gives them, they become our God. And you've, you've, you've had this feeling before, haven't you? You know, you, you, you get up in the morning and you really, really know you should probably read your Bible and you know, pray a bit because otherwise your day is going to go horribly because you, you know that you're not going to have the juice that day to fight against sin. And you wake up and, and you think, no, I just need another 10 minutes sleep. Do you know what you're doing there? You're putting 10 minutes sleep above knowing God. That could be a problem. <laughs> you know those times when you know what God calls you to do? You know he calls you to, I don't know, obey the law, be honest to the person you're talking to, and you say, but God really wouldn't want me to do that. I need to, I, I need to do this thing that I know God doesn't like. I mean, and God will understand. That means you're putting that thing above God, and that will lead you astray. Because we have a technical word for that. It's a technical word you see in the Bible over and over again. It's called idolatry. Whatever is ultimate in your affections is your God. Whether or not you believe in the existence of God, whatever is ultimate in your affections is your God. Whatever is the moving factor in your life is what is going to shape your life. If you really desire to have people love you, you will move things, you will say things, you'll do things, you'll do your education in such a way that people will love you, and that is worshiping your God. And to be clear, almost anything can be like this. You can have family as your God. And by the way, then you'll do horrible damage to your family. And you'll be re rebelling against God. You could make it your business, anything like that. And it will lead you astray. And if you notice down in verse 15, it talks about Gilgal. Now, we don't know exactly where Gil what Gilgal is referring to here. But the fact is, in the... In the passage itself seems to be saying that the people of Ephraim have both done this in the past at Baal Peor, back when they were, before they took the land of Israel, and again at Gilgal. They haven't changed any. They haven't gotten any better over the 400 years since the conquest of Judah. They just keep doing this. They've placed something above God, and so they're led to discount God for the sake of these points. It doesn't matter what trumps God. Whatever's trumping God, that's the basis of your sin. And notice, uh, I just want to notice something else here that uh, a friend of mine pointed out after the last time I preached. 
This is not merely personal, it's also corporate. The word Ephraim, it's interesting how the Bible does this. Ephraim is both the name of a people group and a personal name. So this isn't just merely an individual thing. Families can put the wrong things above God. Churches can put the wrong things above God. Nations can put the wrong things above God. In this case, what we're talking about is not just individual people, though individual people did it too, but the nation itself had decided to venerate other things above God. That's easy to do. You know how that works, right? When the people around you are doing something, it's always easier for you to do it too. Have you noticed that? Am I the only one that has that problem? You know, when I'm standing, when I'm in a room with a whole bunch of people who, you know, I'm wanting to get along, you know, they're having fun, we're partying, and they go somewhere I don't want to go. They start doing things that I think are bad. And there's a little moment where there's this choice I can make. I can just go along to get along, or I can say, no guys, I'm sorry, I gotta stop. I gotta say, it's more common that I go, go along to get along. It's even worse if there are people around you who you respect and admire. I mean, I, as a pastor, I generally work with other Christians. Let's face it, not a lot of people go out of their way, not a lot of atheists go out of their way to find an evangelical pastor to talk to. But even among my Christian friends, there are times Christians sin too, and Christians put things above God all the time. And it's easy for me to just join in with them and follow along. But this was a point several sermons ago, so uh, you could go back in the, in the website and find it. Second of all, Misplaced affections corrupt. Notice verse, at the end of verse 10, it's kind of the most blunt I've seen it in a while. They became detestable like the thing they loved. You see, the misplaced affections we have corrupt us. The more we follow the things that we love, the easier it is to follow them that way. The more decisions we make to follow a false god, the easier it is to, be follow, to follow that false god. The decision becomes easier every single time until eventually, well, we become shaped by that sin. They have become detestable like the things they love. In verse 15, the princes of Judah or the princes of Ephraim had become rebels. Don't miss that they hadn't just, it isn't that they have rebelled against God, it's that they became rebels. That's who they are now. It's a part of their being. Uh, We like to separate between the sin and the sinner. You know, love the sin, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. We, We say that all the time. Now, I think that's actually a good thing to run for us as humans. But I think we need to be careful too because... As we follow sin, we become the sin. I mean, before long, it becomes easy for us to do the things that are wrong. Before long, it becomes, we we actually like doing the wrong thing. So we have to be careful. But that was the point of my last sermon, that misplaced affections corrupt. 
And so here's point three, and this is where I'd like to camp. God has wrath on our misplaced affections. God is not neutral on our sin. And that's good news. I, 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 it's hard to believe that that's good news right now because I've put this in the context of against us. I've said that, you know, we can be corrupted, that we can follow after sin, and that God has wrath on us. And nobody ever really likes to think about God having wrath on us. But to be honest, we actually do understand how this feels, don't we? I mean, you've, you've had this experience, right? You, you, if you watch the news, you've probably had this experience. You know, you've watched a news story about how somebody did something horrible to someone else. Usually it's an abuse of authority. I don't know if you've, uh, I don't know what example is coming to mind now. For some people, it's police brutality. You know, the police are supposed to protect people. And instead of protecting people, they use their power to, to overwhelm people, to beat them up, to have power over them, to be bullies. And we get mad at that, don't we? I'll tell you one that really gets me. And I mean, it's one that, that's pretty common here in Newfoundland, especially after the Mount Cashel Orphanage. You've seen these instances where people in authority used their authority to victimize children. I don't know how else to say it. They take the most... We're not, none of us are innocent, but the most innocent among us, our children, the people who we most need to protect. And then we have people in authority who instead of using their authority to protect people, it seems so light to say they hurt them, but they hurt other people. They hurt people in their charge, and even worse, they hurt them in such a way that the people who are hurt begin to blame themselves and feel horrible about the way that that's happened to them. And do you know what my natural reaction is there when I see that, when I hear that, when I, when I hear about that? I don't have children. Uh, so I don't really have to think about, you know, my child facing this. But you know what my reaction is? I get mad. And you know what? If you don't get mad, I'm kind of worried about you. Because let's face it, that's the natural reaction to when you see evil. If you have any goodness in you at all, your natural reaction when you see evil is anger. Gavin Ortland in a blog post this, this week, in fact, said, anger is how goodness responds to evil. Just how squinting the eyes is how you respond to bright lights. Or recoiling is how a hand reacts to a hot surface. If you have goodness at all in you, the reaction to evil is this cannot be, this should not be. You get mad at it.
I might be alone in that, but I think more than me feels that. When something evil happens, we say this should not be, something ought to be done, we've got to deal with this somehow, because that's what God put in us. This is how we know that God's wrath is a good thing, because we know the goodness of what happens in us. When people saw slavery back in the 19th century, not everybody, but some people began to understand this should not be. I need to work to make this no longer the case. I need to give my life for this. When people see the evils happening in the world around them, some of us, some, sometimes the most noble of us are saying, this ought not be. I will make it change by God's grace. You know, when somebody sees the, de- the death statistics for infants and mothers in Afghanistan and says, not in this world, not on my watch, and gives up their life here and goes there to stop it. When we say here that the people who face loneliness and despair will not face loneliness and despair on my watch because it's wrong, that's our reaction to evil. We get angry and it moves us to do stuff. And that's a good thing. But let's just push that example a little further. The one where, you know, the, we have, like at Mount Cashel Orphanage, people in authority hurt children, people who were, they were supposed to protect. That isn't the whole story, is it? There's something else that makes Newfoundlanders angry about that a little bit further. Because the people in authority above those, pe- those people simply shoved it under the rug. They pretended it didn't happen. Where they did pr- accept that it happened, they said something like, well, I know you feel bad about it, I know you're sorry, so we'll just shunt you off to another parish and we'll pretend it didn't happen. We'll, we, if the kids remember what's going on, we'll teach them that they should be forgiving and they should not worry about the evils that's been done to them. We'll make them feel bad and guilty about the fact that they feel angry about being hurt. That makes me mad too, to have people in authority who just scrape over things. And what this text says in Hosea chapter 9, God is not like that. God does not shove sin and evil under the cosmic rug. He doesn't pretend that it's not there. He deals with it. There are two, at least two, very major implications to that. First of all, it means that there is no evil in this world that will not be made right. You see, God is powerful. God is good and God is powerful. And so we look at the evil in the world around us, and do you know what the wrath of God says? 
it says that there will be a day when this will no longer be the case, when evil will be defeated. And that's actually the opposite of what the world seems to be saying. You know, these, there's been a move in movies to have kind of dark films where you have kind of ambiguous endings, not necessarily happy endings. Because we're beginning to lose faith, lose hope, that goodness ultimately triumphs. And what Hosea says here, when we see God having anger finally at Ephraim for the evils that they do, evil is going to lose. There will be a day when there is nothing but goodness left. Friends, we will not always have to deal with sin and evil and death. Someday, every evil thing will come undone. You think evil is going to beat God? Evil can and will beat us from time to time. It will. We will face trouble. We will face persecutions. Sometimes, I'm not going to lie to you, sometimes horrible things are going to happen to people here, and it's just going to be the way it is. But the good news is that that's not ultimate. There will come a day when evil is defeated completely, when every sin that has ever been had faces true, just punishment. When every victim has every tear wiped from their eye, it will happen because God will make things right. This teaches us three things about God's wrath, at least. And there's actually a fourth that I thought of just now that I'm probably going to also have to put in here. First of all, when we look at the text, we can see that the wrath of God is measured, not like our wrath. When I get mad at things, I want to overwhelmingly destroy them. I want to, you know, I just, I, I just rage impotently. That's not God. God has infinite power, and God is good. And so he has a measured response to sin. Look at verses 11 to 14, 16, and 17. The, the, the fact that it talks about how children are going to be removed, it sounds really, really dark. But let's face it, that's just the removal of a promise he gave Israel in Exodus chapter 23, 24 to 26. God back then in Exodus, before Balpeor, before all of the time that Ephraim spent there rebelling against God, he says, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness from among you. None shall mess carry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. You see, God had promised good to them, and they had rejected it. And so the reaction that God gives is not to go overboard and do horrible things, any, every horrible thing that God can imagine, because, you know, God is infinite, and he is infinitely powerful. I mean, it says in the Bible that the world is upheld by the word of his power. Do you know what that means? That means that every single moment that we exist 
that there is something rather than nothing. It's because God says, let there be something. Do you know how much effort God has to put into ending all the evil in the universe by ending all of us? He just stops speaking. That's it. He has infinite power. He is capable of doing horrible, infinite things. And if I had infinite power, I would, I get angry at people, I would do horrible things to them for all eternity and I would think up new evil things to do. God doesn't do that. Instead, God delivers what he said he would deliver. Or more pointedly, he removes a blessing that he said that he would remove if they didn't follow him. That's the second point. God's wrath is appropriate. You see, I'm not good when I get angry and all those kinds of things. I sometimes, you know, I get angry on the wrong things. I get angry at people who, have, who I imagine have sinned against me who actually haven't. I sinned against them. I mean, it, it, it is kind of funny. I, I do get mad at people for me having sinned against them. I'm kind of messed up that way. God's not like that. God's reaction to sin is appropriate, not just to the sin, but to the, to the situation. He's never wrong. He knows all things. He's completely good. His wrath doesn't fluctuate based on his feelings. It's total. It's settled. It's based in his goodness. And so will be ultimately good. In verse 15 it says, and this is a little confusing in most translations because it, we only have one for, word for love and if you go through the Hebrew Bible there's like 20 different ways that love is referred to. We all, just, we all just translate it as love. In this case it's talking more about an affection, a positive feeling towards. In verse 15 it says, I will love them no more, which sounds really harsh if you think of God, you know, I will not love them anymore. That's not quite what he means. He means that he won't actually give the positive feelings and positive benefits to them that he was giving before. The gifts are removed, proportionate to what the people should know. And I'm going to put in another point that it's probably not going to show up on the screen because I didn't put it in in time. God's wrath is powerful. God's wrath is appropriate. It's measured. It's good. And it's powerful. Right now, as we speak, uh, Chinese troops are probably massing on the border of Hong Kong to try and suppress peace demonstrations and democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong. Nobody can stop them. Think about that. Nobody can stop them. The U.S. military couldn't stop them. If they did try, the Chinese would react with full force. There are a lot of things in this world that we can't fix. I have no ability to fix the sin that's happened to other people. I can't do it. I don't have that strength. We as a group don't have the strength to defeat evil completely. But do you know who does? God. And do you know what else? He will. 
he promises that he will defeat evil. Maybe not in the ways that we will, but he is powerful. He is good and he is powerful. And his wrath against wickedness, even our wickedness, will eventually end our wickedness. And then the final point about God's wrath that we learned from this passage, at least for now, it's to bring us to repentance. The New Testament says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But more to the point, when you read Hosea 9, there's something implied by the things that Hosea is saying to the people of Israel. It would be stupid and pointless of Hosea to say all this stuff if God wasn't opening the possibility of the people to repent and turn away. The book exists not as a testament to just merely God's wrath, but the fact that God, God's wrath is meant to move us to start, turn away from that wrath, to turn away from the sin that so easily ensnares us and causes us to rebel against him. Friends, today is the day of salvation. The Lord offers us the possibility to turn away from our sin. And now I have to actually talk about something that isn't actually in this text, but is written large throughout the entire text of Scripture. How can God do that, huh? I told you that God doesn't scrape the cosmic dust of our sin under the rug. He doesn't pretend that it didn't happen. He doesn't imagine that the world didn't have our sin in it. Yet, he offers forgiveness and repentance. How can he do that? Why can he do that righteously while we do that and we're actually just accepting sin? Well, it's simple, and it's actually part of why we're doing communion today. You see, there, what God looked on the sin of the world and desiring to be both righteous and to, and to redeem those who have faith in Christ, God himself stepped down from heaven. God himself was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. God himself lived a life here on earth, identifying with us, living with us, and saying to the people, if only you put your faith in me, I will drink the cup of wrath. I will take it on myself. That is what God did. God displayed his power by putting off the majesty of Godhood and stepping down into the world to live the life that we never lived and couldn't live and to take upon himself the sins of every person who ever just puts their faith in him. Not so that they can continue in sin, but so that he can, by their Holy Spirit, change them so that they no longer have the affections for the things of evil. 
And not only did he say, friends, I will drink the cup of wrath for you. We will say it in a few minutes. Because the day came that Jesus, though he is God, though he could have called 12 legions of angels to defend himself, he took upon himself the cross. And ultimately, he took on himself the wrath of God. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. As we drink the cup this morning, remembering his blood, that our, our, body, our souls might be washed through his most precious blood, our bodies made clean by his body. As we can do that, it's because he drank the cup of wrath reserved for us and for our sin and drank it down to the dregs and said, it is finished. And friends, that's a historical thing. We have the record of that happening. He didn't just give us a promise and say, I'll do that sometime in the future. Sometime when you don't know about it, I will, I will handle the sin in your life. He said, no, I will handle the sin in your life once and for all, and I will do it now. And he did it. And friends, all we need to do is put our faith in him. We can turn away from our sin today. You don't need to live another millisecond in sin and death. It won't be easy. You will have to wage war against the sin in your life. But friends, he doesn't demand that you become perfect before you come to him. You can come to him now. Regardless of the sin you've, you've had in your life, regardless of the things you're thinking about right now that God possibly couldn't forgive you from, I have to tell you, not only can he forgive you for it, he showed you that he can. He showed you that it's true. So friends, won't you come, won't you put your faith in Christ in two ways. First of all, put in your faith in Christ for his righteousness. Let him be our righteousness. And when you get angry about the sins in the world and the evils that are around us, put your faith in his justice. We don't need to punish anyone else. We don't need to bring down the wrath of God on anybody. God will do that. But we can bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. That no matter how bad they've been, no matter how evilly they've sinned against others and against you. Christ has paid for it. So friends, we are now ministers of reconciliation, bought by, a, uh, by the love of God, not an easy, simple love that simply pretended that our sin didn't exist, but by the hard, true love that faced wrath that we deserved and took it.